0: Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. I'm Julie, your host, and I'm so delighted you could join us on this New Year's Eve. My intention in doing this show is to provide inspiration, insight, and comfort to people all over the world by helping to answer life's unanswerable questions. And I am beyond thrilled on this New Year's Eve to introduce Dr. Chris Kerr to all of you. He is the author of one of the most important books you'll ever read, Death is but a dream. I think that this should be mandatory reading for all high school students. Chris,
2: thank yeah. you, <laughs>
0: and everybody on the planet. I uh, I just can't say enough good things. Everybody, when I first called Chris about being on this show, I said, "You know, I uh, I'm your biggest PR agent, secret PR agent. And it's a secret because you don't know I exist."
2: But yeah, I'm grateful. I, uh,
1: thank you. Yeah.
0: Very, very yeah. Nice. I. Uh, Talk about your book all the time to people and, and get have given it a lot. So there you go. And when I was thinking about who to have on my New Year's Eve show, I don't have guests very often, like maybe three or four times a year, because yeah. my show's a call-in show. Right. But when I was thinking about who I wanted to have for New Year's Eve, I thought of you because I thought of New Year's Eve, you know, new beginnings on the first of the year. And and with the work that you do and the work that I do. I think it helps people discover a new way to embrace life through what we learn about the experience of death. Yeah. And it's very different from what we've been taught. Yeah, and absolutely. so thank you so much yeah, for the work you. that I you really do. It. Yeah, you bet. I have to tell you how I found out found out about you though initially. Huh. This is a fun story. In fall of last year, fall yeah. of 2019, I went on YouTube to look to see if I could find a video to figure out how to change the battery in my car key. (laughs) And so I did a search on it and you came up with your TED talk.
2: Oh, isn't that odd? I mean, you wonder why.
0: Well, it was divine guidance. It was divine intervention. I'm certain because, you know, when you go on YouTube and they have all those different.
2: Yeah. Films, you know,
0: on the side, they were all about changing the battery in my key. Oh, but You were front and center on the big screen. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I guess I'm supposed to figure out who this guy is and what he's oh, isn't doing. That funny? So it was Most hilarious. people
2: ignore those things. I'm I, know, glad you but I
0: but it was just so random. And I thought, yeah. all right, yeah, right. you know, who is this guy? And what's he doing? <laughs> because the caption says something like, you know, discovering dreams of loved ones at the end of life or something. And I thought, yeah, yeah. all right,
2: <laughs>
0: this is either.
2: Oh, that's interesting.
0: Or uh, something like that. So I believe that I was divinely guided.
2: It was to meant to be.
0: And your work. And of course that was before your book came out and all I had to go on was your, your Ted talk. And so I integrated it into my curriculum immediately in the courses right. that I teach to people all around the world, to teach them how to do all this stuff that I do, all the yeah. energy work that I do, and and it was great when your book came out because now that's part of the lesson plan too.
2: Was great. So yeah, thank so you.
0: I, so I use your your research in uh, in what I teach others. All right, everybody, here is the official scope on Dr. Kerr. He's the CEO and Chief Medical Officer of Hospice Buffalo, located in Buffalo, New York. He leads an organization that cares for more than 1,000 patients a day. That's a ton. That's Yeah, about 1,200
2: a day. 1,200
0: a day, suffering from serious illness. In addition, Dr. Kerr has overseen the integration and expansion of palliative care into local hospitals and developed one of the largest home-based palliative care programs in the country. During his career, he's been instrumental in fostering an integrative holistic approach to care that focuses on the whole person rather than on individual symptoms. Yay, good for you. <laughs> he was born and raised in Toronto, Canada and received his MD and PhD from the Ohio State University, yep. my alma mater. That fact alone makes you I know. But-
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: His background in research evolved from a scientist's perspective to the human experience of illness witnessed from the bedside, specifically patients' dreams and visions at the end of life. Dr. Kerr's TED talk about end of life dreams has had over 3 million views and spurred an enormous response in the non-medical community, both nationally and internationally. In his book, Death is But a Dream, Dr. Kirk combines quantified data from more than 1,400 patients, along with their stories about end-of-life dreams and visions, to demonstrate unseen processes that prove to be remarkably life-affirming. I believe death is but a dream, and my angelic attendance should be required reading for everybody who's either lost a loved one or who's going to lose a loved one. So that's pretty much everybody on the planet. Your <laughs> book is the yang to my book's yin. Good. Yin and yang. I mean, I when I give my book to somebody, I give your book to some oh, to that same you. person. I'm like, here's the spiritual side, here's the, you know, the research medical side that validates.
1: We're yeah. talking
0: about the same thing here. Oh, so,
1: sure.
0: I was so thrilled when you released the book cuz I thought, "Ah, oh, science is catching up with woo-woo. It's
1: <laughs>
0: it was terrific. So thank you for the work that well, you do. Too. And, uh, you know, my goodness, I'm just so delighted that you made the time
2: for us much.
0: with your busy schedule. So were you surprised with the interest level from your yeah.
2: talk? Yeah. Yeah, it's actually a funny story. I um, So I'd published this work in a medical journals. I did it actually out of frustration. I was just trying to teach students and residents. And... we live in an evidence-based time and uh people would say well there's no evidence so i did the research and we we published and you know it was very objective and it was university approved research and people were screened for confusion and all that did the research and published it really had no interest and then um somebody said "You you should do a ted talk and um and i didn't know what ted talks were at the time And they just held up a phone. I just spoke for two minutes, completely forgot about it. And then I was picked for the TED Talk. I did the TED Talk. And um, yeah, no, I was stunned. You know, yeah, it's got over 3 million views. And what's more interesting, it has over 5,000 comments, which means um, there's a story in the disconnect between the lack of response on the medical side, on the clinical side, and the enormous international response on the non-clinical side. So in other words, this matters to the people who are recipients of our care, the patients and the families. And what's clear in the comments is they're looking for a context or for a validation of what they've witnessed or experienced. And it's not coming from the clinical side. And that's what I think is the story behind the story, because it was, it was just bizarre experience if you're me to hope to get the attention of fellow physicians and whatnot and you get a zero and then the next thing you know, they're calling you from Korea, Germany, China, um, because they want to talk about this. Because mm-hmm. um, it's always been valued in other cultures and throughout history. Um, it's just it's something in the medicalization of, of illness and end of life that we've discounted or disregarded. Um, and that's actually what propelled the book was I never sought out to do a book uh, at all. But the, the responses from. Uh, from people were really quite overwhelming. Um, and that's the best thing about the TED talk, not the talk, but people's comments are just incredible. Yeah. Well, yes. I,
0: I find too, in, in what I do, that there is a lot of information on afterlife. There's a lot of information on how to grieve when somebody dies. There's a lot of information on near death experiences, but there isn't information on what's actually happening when somebody's dying.
2: Oh, you nailed that's it.
0: That's the thing that, that we're more we're most afraid of. And I yeah. like you, these experiences and these stories that families have that when they read my book and it validates what they've experienced, it, and it's it's international to your point. I find the same thing, that it gives them such a sense of comfort. Like yeah. okay, grandma maybe really wasn't hallucinating. And maybe there really is something here, and it le- it it makes what I find is it makes a horrific experience more palatable because they know, at least in my experience, from what I see in my mind's eye, our loved ones are surrounded by angels and deceased loved ones and the spirits of deceased pets,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
0: and that gives so much comfort to their yeah, family you, you, members.
2: You, you're right; it, it's basically humanizing. Dying, which has always been a human experience it 's not a medical quandary right. um, and um, you you 're also correct, I think it 's a really good point, and I like the way you said it, which is there 's actually these buckets, and there 's the afterlife piece, which is one thing, and we 've always argued that the dying process is a mystery and a miracle kind of onto itself without having to interpret um, and 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 then there 's the near death experiences which are completely different. Um, there's just plain dying, um, which people aren't coming, going back and forth from. So, yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah. And it was important, unfortunately, that it came from a physician. Um, because it's, and, and, and that's, that, that's arguably unfortunate, but it, it, it wasn't done from a therapeutic standpoint. as a psychotherapy piece or a religious piece. It was just done in the care of the patient.
0: Exactly. So were you raised in a religious home where you were taught about no. spirits in the afterlife?
2: No, not at all. Um, it's funny because both my family, there was um, uh, strong religious folks, and one of them actually led the Episcopal Church of the United States. But my immediate family wasn't at all. No. Mm-mm. Okay.
0: So yeah. I know you're a fifth generation physician. Yeah. So is it a nature thing or a nurture thing or both with you? What do you think?
2: Oh, that's a great yeah. question. I, I think, and interestingly, that includes women. So I even have, so my forefathers were all physicians, but I have an aunt actually too, who started the Women's College Hospital in Toronto. So I loaded with doctors. I think it's an example. Um, I think that it's, you, you know, if it's done right, you, you learn to see... Um, someone's life work as, yours, as an example, uh, and it was always shown to me to be this privileged. And um, so, yeah, it became an aspiration. Um, it would have been odd in my ha- household, no one would have judged me, but um, um, if I had said, you know, I wanna become a banker, it just wouldn't have worked. But ironically, my mother didn't want me to go to medical school. Why not? And, um, she actually cried when she found out I was accepted. Oh. Um, yeah, I think that's unique, uh, because she's a psychologist and she felt that, that, um, being a father and whatnot was, would be important. And that medicine was, my dad was a trauma surgeon. It was so one dimensional, um, that you could help people without having to necessarily sacrifice that much of your life. So, yeah,
0: well, I'm a serial entrepreneur Mm-hmm. And I've founded nine companies in five industries, and and people say to me, "Do you think it's nature or nurture?" And I said, "I think it's a DNA thing." And actually, interestingly enough, several researchers have segregated some kind of gene mutation that makes serial entrepreneurs more risk willing to oh, take risks. Oh yeah, and that would so, make sense, right? So I never thought of myself as a mutant before, but yeah.
2: Yeah, gene mutation, <laughs> were your parents entrepreneurial?
0: Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, somebody who's a serial entrepreneur who just people say to me, well, how do you do it in all those industries? I go, well, I just took money from one company and was interested in something else and started something else and then took money from that company and, you know, had several other ones going. But I wonder if there's a Dr. Gene mutation. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe you're a Dr. Mutant and I'm an entrepreneur. I don't
2: know. know. Interesting.
0: So when describing end-of-life care, you say it's a medical assembly line of the absurd. What's that mean?
2: Um, it means that even in the face of obvious medical futility, um, we're still death-denying and death-defying. And so that m- our medical system doesn't really recognize dying. Um, there's always something to intervene upon. And even the ec- economics of healthcare don't recognize a dying patient. So you can't go into a hospital because you feel you feel like you're you're sick and you need help because you're dying. You go to a hospital because you're going to get an intervention or an image or a lab or something or a biopsy. Um, so our we're all we're designed to treat and to cure, and yet our promise as as physicians, the oath is to uh, treat where. Possible and comfort always. And um, so we've got to treat peace down, um, but we don't have the, 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 the comfort when you can't treat peace so down. Um, and that's why the majority of the people who are dying in the last um, a couple of months are go to an ER. Um, not because there's a meaningful outcome, but it's because that's the only place they're seen and recognized. And yet what the majority of people need is practical help in their home. And within the developed world, we supply the least of it. Mm-hmm. So we have a medical system that's world class where you can get million dollar workup and care as long as you're considered salvageable. When you're no longer treatable, you kind of fall off the cliff. Um, and ironically, you go home. And when you need care, probably the most, you're not going to receive it necessarily unless you're getting hospice.
0: I have a, a, I had an experience with my younger sister who collapsed in a store from an AVM mm-hmm. and made it to the restroom and uh, uh, vomited and aspirated. And from what we could tell from the security cameras, she didn't have oxygen for about 20 minutes. So mm-hmm. some good Samaritan found her in the ladies room. They called the ambulance. She was in Columbus, Ohio. I live in Birmingham, Alabama. And so they put her on a ventilator in the ambulance. You know, I got a call. I was on a plane within a couple of hours, got to Columbus. And she, after about the third day, the doctors kept telling my family that it, it was early and not to lose hope and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, in the meantime, I'm able to communicate telepathically with her from the time I got the call, you know, till t- today. I mean I can communicate with her at any time. So I I what I did with her and what I've done with all my loved ones who have been dying and at the end of their lives is I do the night shift at the hospital to be the advocate to stay there because I can get the staff to talk to me and mm-hmm. I can, you know, really establish a relationship and get information. Back in the day before HIPAA, I I'd read the chart. You know, I'd go in and I'd look at the patient's chart. Yeah. So one night after she'd been on the ventilator for about three days and this had gone on with the, all the doctors were saying, you know, it's early, we have hope, blah, 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 blah. I had the nurse bring the chief resident up. It was probably two in the morning. And I said, you got a level with my family because you're giving them false hope. And you know, as well as I do, she's not going to make it mm-hmm. if you take her off the ventilator or if by some miracle she does, she's not going to want to be here. And so you got to level with my family. And he did the next day. It mm. wasn't the attendings, you know, it wasn't the normal, the doctors who'd been doing it for years. It was a, a resident
1: yeah.
2: who
0: had the compassion to be yeah, able to talk and, to and my
2: how family. Un- how unfortunate that you had to uh, ask for truth.
0: Well, I think, I've been, I was in the medical industry for 30 years, working with surgeons and working with doctors. So I'm not intimidated by them, but I think most people are.
2: Right, right. Well, that's the thing you worry about, people who aren't as capable of self-advocating. Right,
0: right. But I think everybody needs to have somebody there if possible, especially when they're in the hospital, to help. And I think that's why it's so important for all of us to have a living will,
2: Mm -hmm. which is what
0: are our you know, wishes if we can't make them for ourselves.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. But okay. it's, it's, it's hard to get um, truth within the, uh, a medical system um, if the truth isn't, necess- if the news isn't necessarily good. Um, it's unfortunate.
0: Why is that? Do you think that doctors are just afraid of it? There is like I a
2: failure Yeah, I think that, that what's happened is the science of medicine um, has really taken off in the last hundred years so it's just this explosion of of, uh, of a really very um, a phenomenal tech use of technology um, and whatnot and i think that that leads to the delusion that there's always something you can do um, and i think we've lost the art of medicine um, which is to be present also and and um, even in the regardless of the outcome And so now we've got, we're so organ based that it's like going to a spot welder. So you go in with a multitude of problems and you're seeing somebody from renal, somebody from pulmonology, somebody from cardiology, but there's nobody, it's very hard to take care of the person totality now. Compared to, you know, kind of the old days where there was a, at least a family doctor who is by your side from journey from birth to the end. And, um, you know, there wasn't the, now there's kind of abandonment and it's institutionalized abandonment. So you go to a hospital and you don't necessarily have care oversight and actually cares more fragmented, not less. Um, so now you don't necessarily. There's a hospitalist team and an outpatient team, and then within each of those, there's mid levels on top of the physician. And da 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 da, da. And um, that's why I always refer to this as kind of this assembly line. You start the assembly line, and your you, you're different points along that path, you're going to be touched or intervened upon by different people. Um, but nobody's overseeing necessarily the whole journey. There's actually interesting data that the more physicians involved in the care of the patient the less the patient and the family actually know about what's happening Um, because there's an assumption that you know i'm here for my piece on a consulting basis and um somebody else is taking care of the other part and um so yeah it's there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen i'm afraid
0: so what do you recommend to, some fam- to any family that's in a situation like I was? And I it's have a great brothers, question. and she, had a hus- she has a husband and yeah. you know, I'm the one intervening in the middle of the night.
2: Well, I think you nailed on the most important piece, which is don't assume you're going to be told. Um, so we do palliative care in hospitals and a lot of our role is basically just strictly communication.
0: Can you can you go into what's the difference between hospice and palliative care, yeah. and when does somebody go from being in palliative care into hospice?
2: Yeah, it's, so, so so palliative care is care that's directed at quality of life, so that encompasses a lot of things. That encompasses the physical symptoms, the psychological piece of it. Um, it's whole person care. It's consider of the family, the practical needs. So it's really this umbrella. And it's for people who have serious illness, you don't necessarily have to be dying to get palliative care. So you could be, you know, somebody who's had a heart attack, heart failure on event, debilitated, but you're going to recover. Um, and you may need p- palliative symptoms to help you deal with your illness and and manage at home and all those sort of things. Um, it's heavily weighted on communication trying to line the patient's wishes with the outcome. So what does that person understand? What do they want, etc.? cetera? Hospice is a piece of palliative care, but it's only for people who are who have a prognosis of six months or less. Okay. Um, it's a Medicare benefit. It's a program where palliative care is a, is a philosophy of care that's much broader than just hospice. Um, in terms of recommendations, it's did, to do what you did instinctively which is that you ask for uh, you need to advocate don't assume um, ask for that family meeting uh, you know if you you're not seeing the doctor because they're coming by earlier in the morning you tell the nurse I'd like a phone call please from the attending supervising physician and if there's a family I said well, you know we need a family meeting you should not sit in purgatory um, that's not okay Um, If you're not getting a response, which often happens, then you ask for the patient family advocate within the hospital, every hospital has one. And you say, look, you know what? I'm not gonna be at the end of this pile. You you need to, somebody needs to get me in a room with somebody who can tell me. You, You know, unfortunately people are left with these voids of information and they're assuming the worst and they're suffering. And it's just a conversation and it's your right um yeah
0: but the key is how do you get the doctor to really you go to the nurse with you like oh. i had this resident level with me because i approached him about it but the attendings were we kept telling the family well there's you know there's it's early there's a lot of hope there's these things we can do and things like that so how do you yeah you have you, a gut feeling that this is not
2: you put you 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 put it back on the middle way that almost gives them permission. And and it turns out that the most accurate way, if you want accurate prognosis from a doctor, the way you frame the question is, would you be surprised if? So I'll give you an example. They have a million algorithms to predict end of life and they help, but the best one to get the information from a clinician is to ask them, would you be surprised if this patient was alive in six months? And they say, that gives them permission. So, well, you know, no. So, Mm -hmm. you know, um, do you think it's likely that it's kind of what you did intuitively, you know, Mm -hmm. is that you went there first. It's unfortunate, but it's the way it kind of works. They should be leading us, not the other way around. But Mm -hmm. sometimes it helps to take off that responsibility that they feel somehow that they they are the keepers of the life, which is medically, which is, you know, biologically determined, not physician determined. If somebody's dying, they're dying. And whether the doctor likes it or the doctor doesn't like it. So,
0: Yeah. So everybody watching, in the show notes, I'm going to have a link to a website you can go to to take, you fill out the blanks, and it will be specific to your state. This is for U.S listeners where you can get a living will for free so get one for yourself get one for everybody in your family my son as soon as he he was 18 I had a living will done for him because it's it's just so important what your wishes are in case of an emergency in case you can't make those choices for yourself so look in the show notes for that all right so tell us about your research and findings oh okay remarkable
2: Yeah. So um, as I was saying, my my objective was really to teach people and they would say there wasn't anything in the literature. And when I looked, what it was medically is people described cases or observations, but they didn't put any real rigor uh, behind it. By that, I mean using a validated instrument and ruling out for things like confusion. So we did that. And what we did is we asked people with a questionnaire um, every day leading up to death by several weeks to months. So, and the questions were really basically, you know are you having dreams? Yes, no. Are they feel real on a scale of zero to 10? What were you dreaming about, et cetera? So we tried to standardize the questions. And um, what we found in our first study um, was the vast majority of people, uh, roughly 88% of people were having at least one of these experiences. And there were some very common themes. Um, among them was that these, they were, uh, the degree of realism was about 10 out of 10. So these felt virtual. And one of the things we hear most often is, you know, no, no, I don't normally dream, or you don't understand, this wasn't just a dream. Um, so realism was key. Um, the, about 85% were extremely comforting. Um, and the ones that were not comforting, though, were extremely valuable for other reasons which we can talk about. The frequency of these experiences increased as people approached death. And then when we looked at content, what was fascinating was that as you got closer to death, you were more like the content was mostly likely to be of people who you loved and lost. And what was interesting in that is that when we measured comfort, so what content theme provide the most comfort, seeing deceased loved ones provided the most comfort as opposed to let's say travel. So there's this built-in mechanism as people approach death that they're having increasing frequency of these experiences. They're overwhelmingly comfortable, uh, comforting and they're most frequently dreaming of people who they've loved and lost. Some other really interesting things, very little is said um, between the person who's in the dream and the dreamer, um, but everything seems to be understood or intuited. Um, They don't come out of these experiences with questions kind of for in a therapeutic way, like wonder what this metaphor means. It just seems to be understood. There's this editing process where the people who loved us best or unconditionally or nurtured us, secured us, those are the ones who are prevalent and the people who withheld or conditioned loved are omitted. Um, So it often comes down to these very critical, pivotal relationships. Time seems to be irrelevant so 95 year old men can smell the perfume of their mother who they lost when they were five. Um, so it, it's, it, there's this connectivity within our life uh, going back to whomever um, cherished us. Um, and that's what comes back and that's what's soothing. And definitely the fear of death um, diminishes. We also have done a bunch of studies, some other interesting studies. One we did looking at death as a traumatic experiences and looking at measures of post-traumatic growth and people who are having these experiences actually gained insight and understanding even as they as so as they're approaching death so it's more than a feel-good thing they're actually um gaining gaining ground there and, and which goes to this paradox of dying you're physically lessening but emotionally psychologically spiritually you're actually very much alive and vibrant
0: so here's my experience that correlates with everything that you just said number one visions are like in high def and dreams where are visits like people will tell me my god it was like the colors were more vibrant and the senses were more heightened and the hair on the back of my neck <clears throat> was standing up and i said that wasn't a dream that was a visit that's how you can tell the difference from the spiritual word world little said spirits communicate telepathically Mm -hmm. So you don't hear it, you know it, it just comes in like a thought in the head. So that doesn't surprise me that your patients don't have questions because they already know they got their questions answered Mm -hmm. telepathically. I do think it's interesting and it correlates with my experience with working with thousands and thousands of families over the years. People talk about seeing their deceased loved ones. And that's what I see when I scan someone, you know, I mean, I can, I can describe to them what the deceased loved ones look like who are with them. Whether I'm scanning a situation in India, I'm working with a family who has a loved one who's dying in India right now. Last week I worked with a family who has a loved one who's dying in Greece. And and I can communicate with the patient who's dying telepathically and get information to the family. Like this guy in Greece was a retired admiral. Mm -hmm. And I said, what do you need? And he said, I need to talk to my sister. Well, the guy was at the point where he couldn't communicate. And I said to his wife, who was on the phone with me, I said, he wants to talk to his sister. Is his sister close by? And she said, no, she lives in Australia. I said, well, get her on on Skype or Zoom or Mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. they did. And that's what he needed to pass. The other thing about time is it's been my experience and understanding that time does not exist in the spirit world. Mm-hmm. So 100 lifetimes of 100 years may not even be a blip on the radar screen. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense to me, what you're mm-hmm. saying when you talked about your patient that, you know, is smelling his mother's perfume. Didn't you have a patient that you talked about that he was smelling his mother's perfume or something like
2: that Yeah. In one of your yeah.
0: stories? Yeah,
2: Yeah, he was 95 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he so was, his he was mother in, had he was, been He was yeah. in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. For ninety years yeah, yeah. yeah. it 's interesting the whole terminology we use the word "dream," but people go out of their way to tell us this isn 't like a dream, and when we measure um fifty percent of the time they 're actually awake now what 's weird about that is that you walk into a room it 's not as though they 're actually pointing to somebody like you would think necessarily in a in a vision. and and, and this is a less woo-woo medical interpretation, but dying is basically changes in sleep architecture. You're sleeping more and you're in and out in varying states of alertness. I should say, by the way, that every patient who participated had to sign a consent like you would for a mortgage with risk, benefits, witnesses, the whole thing. And they were screened for confusion before everything. So, and med lists were reviewed and all that. And they were videoed. Many were videoed, I should say. And, um, but, anyways, the the sleep architecture changes. And what may be happening is they're lucid dreaming, and um, which is a real thing. So, the sleep architecture is very different. It's like if you fall asleep during the day and you wake up and you're not sure what happened and whatnot. Um, Either way, there's no matter what you label them, they're strikingly vivid. Um, And you're right, they're rich in detail, colors, everything are described. Um, and it's really something because in some of the videos, there are people who we all understand this idea of you know, dying, the fading, of the, the dimming of the light kind of thing. And people are actually doing the opposite. They're not fighting against anything. And they actually struggle with language to describe what they're experiencing. And it's, it's remarkable to see on video as people kind of um, you know, uh, really work to find words.
0: That's because they're in and out of different realities. So it's like they've got one foot in the human reality and they have one foot in the spirit world reality and our frame of reference for things that we see in the spirit world. Sometimes it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting when I scan people medically, especially I I mean, I watch surgical energetic surgical procedures in my head that emulate what I saw in the OR for all those decades when I was, mm-hmm. you know inventing surgical devices and testing prototypes and stuff like that. But I don't necessarily remember it after the fact. If somebody prompts me, I can go back and get it. But when I talk to somebody maybe a month or six months later, and they'll say, well, remember when you saw? Well, no, I don't. I don't remember it because I'm Mm -hmm. in and out of different realities and I believe that's probably what's happening there
1: Um,
0: with that. It's interesting to me too that you talk about that that people don't necessarily see angels but they're they're seeing their deceased loved ones and the spirits of deceased pets. And that correlates with what I have found as well. I can see angels and the configuration of how angels are set up is what I call the 12 phases of transition. So that's how I tell how close to death somebody is. But the interesting thing about that, again, it goes to the frame of reference because I think we're, most of us have heard of angels, if not been brought up believing in angels, you know, if we're raised in a certain culture or religion, which most cultures have some kind of a form of an angel, but it's not relatable to them. It's, you know, it's an etheric thing. Whereas mm-hmm. Your 95-year-old patient who's seeing his mother mm-hmm. is like, whoa, you know, that's, that's a, almost a tangible thing, even though it's in a dream or a, or a vision. It's something that they can relate to. And that's what I find is that our human minds don't have the ability to make sense of all of these things from different realities because we don't have any frame of reference. So that made a lot of sense to me yeah. when I read that.
2: Yeah, it's research. much more it's much more experiential. Yeah, yeah.
0: So end of life dreams, do you think they're a recent phenomenon or have they been talked about in ancient texts and literature and
1: things
2: like yeah, that? Yeah, well, and that's what reason spurred the research is that it's 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 in Bible, Plato's Republic, it's in popular culture. Um, think of Citizen Cain and Rosebud. Um, uh, I, I mean, it's always been there. It's been part of our human experience.
0: Have you ever heard of Cozy Earth Bedding? It's your ultimate luxury escape. Cozy Earth sheets are temperature regulating and incredibly soft, and they even have a 10-year warranty. They're made from organic bamboo and silk, are hypoallergenic, and even antimicrobial. Cozy Earth sheets are so amazing, they've been on Oprah's favorite things list for five years in a row, and I have them on my bed right now. So, if you're ready to elevate your sleep, Cozy Earth has a special offer just for my listeners. Go to CozyEarth.com and use the code AskJulie for a 35% discount. That's C-O-Z-Y-Earth.com and use code AskJulie for a 35% discount. Upgrade your sleep with Cozy Earth bedding. I love them and so will you.
2: I had actually had an interesting... uh... Thing happened about a month ago. I was contacted by um, an Australian filmmaker who's actually just won her third um, uh, Emmy uh, Award. And um, her name is Lynette Walworth, and she does very interesting work in virtual reality films. She's considered at the forefront of the technical piece of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so she's an Australian. She's working with the Indigenous people of the Amazon and Australia, the Aboriginal people. And um, she caught she 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 wasn't researching dying at all, but it came up the, among when they were talking about their belief systems, which is that and what they said but paraphrased it was basically they were sad was somebody was dying, but they they understand they're also, you know, gonna be okay. And so she contacts me, she says, you know, I just want you to know somebody referred me to your book. And she said, What you describe in your book is exactly what they're describing from this other time, which was really fascinating. So yes, point is, it's not new. It's, it's something more, something that we haven't discovered, something that we've lost and kind of trying to reclaim.
0: Well, and interestingly enough about the Aboriginal cultures and, and other indigenous people, perhaps from the Amazon and other parts of the world, they've been communicating telepathically while they're alive for mm-hmm. millennia. Mm -hmm. And we, I believe we all come in with the ability. It's just a matter of developing it and enhancing it. And that's what I teach to people all Mm -hmm. over the world from all different walks of life, from physicians and other caregivers to judges and lawyers and professors and housewives and gardeners and, you know, whatever, anybody that's interested in it. Along the line of um, that, it's in the holy text. I was raised Roman Catholic and went to a bazillion funerals, you know, growing up. And at the end of every Catholic funeral is this prayer that said called in paradisum, that talks about the angels and your loved ones will lead you will greet you and lead you into paradise. And that's what I witness when I'm working with a family with somebody who's dying. So when I wrote angelic attendance, I researched where did that start? Where'd that come from? And what I found out was that it originated as a originated as a fifth century Gregorian chant. Mm-hmm. So I have to believe that since the beginning of time, people have been able to see in their mind's eye telepathically yeah. what I see. And perhaps it took till the fifth century till someone was learned enough that they could write this down in the form of a prayer. Right. And certainly some of the most well-educated people were men living in monasteries and synagogues. Yeah. So yeah. I find that fascinating. and, and Yeah, how, it's, a, it's
2: always been, it, been there. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And we've done it. All right. So I want to hear about how you got this through the IRB, Institutional Review oh,
2: Board that's at funny. the
0: University of Buffalo, because yeah. I have some experience with this, because my medical device inventions, we had to do clinical studies on them in order to get them approved by the FDA so that they could be sold. So I had to get by IRBs at, at Indiana University and also at the University of Pittsburgh, and I'm and I'm thinking, how do you get this through the IRB? Going in and saying, hey, I want to do this study on my patients talking, seeing dead people.
2: Actually, it's funny on you focus on nobody ever asked me that question, but it's actually a big part of the story because what happened? You're absolutely right, and um, there's a story again within the story. So they actually first said no. And the reason is, is that we tend to sterilize dying. And ironically, dying lonely and people want to be more connected, not put on a shelf. But we tend to treat it as this kind of sacred space and we can't interfere. Um, so what happened was I went in and they declined it. And then I'm sitting in the hallway and I asked if I could speak to the body and they brought me in. And it just dawned on me, you know, one of them has had... Had uh, was actually in a profession where they were caring for dying people. They weren't medical people at all. And I said, you know, you got it all wrong. I said, you know, people are are most dying people are alone, looking at a white ceiling, and really want to be able to express and to connect. And it it actually is very what's remarkable is nobody declined and to participate in the study, the book, or the film wow. at one even to their last days and I think there's a beautiful message in that even when there was no secondary gain somebody's four days from dying they still valued giving back or having their voices heard Mm -hmm. and that came out and helping
0: others too wanting to yeah
2: oh absolutely yeah you know uh yeah and those are the real names in the book
0: right 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 so I've I believe and have experienced countless times that we all determine when we go, where we go, who's with us when we go, what the circumstances are when we go. What have you experienced with your patients and in your research along those lines? In terms of timing? Yeah, timing, you know, do, do you have patients who waited for somebody like well, a loved time one to I, arrive?
2: You know, or? the best, this is my analogy of this, is that um, if you have kids, and um it's friday night and um you want to if it's late you want to fall asleep and you can't quite fall asleep because you haven't heard the last door shut with them coming in it's kind of like that in that to die you have to be able to fall asleep people die in sleep they don't die awake um they die in the depth of sleep and there just isn't a next breath within sleep it's it's letting go phenomena to be able to sleep, you not only have to be physical, physically comfortable when we all understand that piece of it, but you also have to be psychologically at peace. And that means putting yourself back together again. And um, that, so we see people waiting for that grandchild to be born. We see it with kids waiting to go back to school even. Um, so people hang on. It takes a hell of a lot of energy to be a sick person and people will fight. Um, but they can also relax too and let go. But to do that, though, they need to uh, find peace. And that means waiting to reconnect. Sometimes we just put the phone, now that person from California can't get here. So we put the phone to their ear, just hearing their voice. Um, yeah. you got like, make- Br-
0: like my Greek admiral who wanted to see his sister and she yeah. was in Australia. You know, they did a FaceTime with her.
2: Yeah, very, very important.
0: Yeah, yeah. Back to my sister again, this way, if I ever questioned whether people control the end of their life and who's there and all of that, that, you know, this was, this story was just absolute proof to me. She uh, was still on the ventilator. Her husband would not agree to do a DNR, do not resuscitate on her. He, He wouldn't agree to that. So I'm communicating with her telepathically and I said, okay, he can't do this, it's too hard for him. If you wanna hang around, fine. If you wanna go, you're gonna to have to do something. You're gonna to have to take matters into your own hands basically and do something. So I promise you one morning he left the hospital, he was gone 15 minutes and I'm in the room with a nurse and a tech and she codes, she coded. Mm-hmm. Her brain stem collapsed into her spinal column. Mm-hmm. She turned purple, it was the most horrific experience ever, it was awful. So they're getting ready to resuscitate her. And I said to the nurse, do not resuscitate her. And she said, I have to, you know, I mean, legally I have to. I said, let me me get him on the phone and see if he'll issue a DNR, you know, over the phone. Would that work? And she said, yes. Meantime, all the bells and whistles and, you know, everything's going off on the monitors. So I got him on the phone. He's in a traffic jam on the freeway
2: Oh, geez. He
0: can't even get to the berm to move. So I convinced him to give the nurse the DNR approval. He got back to the hospital a half an hour later. But that gave time for all the rest of the family to be there. And there were probably Uh, 20 people in the room. (sighs) We took her off of the ventilator. So she was orchestrating all of that. Mm -hmm. She waited till he was gone. She knew he was in a traffic jam, for heaven's sakes, mm-hmm. and that for him, for that to allow the amount of time for everybody else that she wanted to be there to be there,
2: Yeah,
0: that's the most remarkable story I've ever heard, no, and right. I experienced
2: yeah. it. Yeah, that's yeah. something.
0: Yeah, so I know every funeral director has a, a whole bunch of stories about oh, sure. Aunt Susie was sitting with Grandma and... Yeah. You know, we'd been sitting with her for three weeks and then Aunt Susie got up to get a cup of coffee and grandma died in her sleep while Aunt Susie was out of the room for three minutes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm sure you have
2: plenty oh, of Oh, yeah, those. all the time. Yeah,
0: as well. So you talked about that that there was a common theme in end-of-life dreams. Can you talk more about that? What did, What did you find other than the family members were there? Was, was there any other theme that-
2: Yeah, I think through? that- um, Again, it comes down to our pivotal, critical relationships, the formative ones. I think that um, you know we're, we all have wounds for having lived and often those get addressed, whether it's to be forgiven, um, to be reunited, um, that, that there's things that, are, that have shaped our identity um, that come to surface. Um, I, I'll give you an example, there was a, a man, who lost his arm as a child at age eight, and uh, he came from a working-class family, and his whole question was, how was he going to be independent, uh, be able to l- earn a living, um, all the function, be a spouse, all those things, and at his end of life, <coughs> you know, he, he sees all of his co-workers come by and tell him he was better at his job than anybody else, So whatever it is we tend to carry um, tends to get addressed. And again, this goes towards this idea of being made whole or being able to relax um, and being put to peace. Um, A mother who had a child who uh, had abused drugs ended up in prison. She dreams she's on a beach, her parents, deceased parents come to her and tell her she was a good mother. Mm -hmm. So um, whatever goes to our core, Often, th- th- so in other words, another way of saying this is: these aren't these aren't frivolous. They're not um, they're not tangential. They're 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 elemental to who and what we believe and who we are and all those things.
0: And to that point, you talk in the book about how it really can heal traumatic events that have happened to the okay, patients much. throughout their lives, and also it helps them oh uh, make amends. With people that they've harmed, mm-hmm. perhaps.
2: Yeah, very much. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, like who was it? Eddie the. Oh the yeah. Gentleman whose daughter. Oh,
2: that's Wayne. Yeah. Wayne. Yes. Yeah, and that's actually captured on film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You, you want me to describe that? Yeah, very, maybe
0: a little bit. Just, oh, just, just give very us
2: quickly. A synopsis. He had been. He was born multi generational impoverishment and substance abuse, and he was on. Cracks in sixteen. He was in his forties. He had spent more of his life in prison than out. Yeah, he was this gregarious, funny guy, and he just couldn't afford to look back or with regret. And then he's actually being filmed, and he's joke. We're asking about dreams. He's joking about sexual dreams, and then he decompensates and starts to cry, and he's. He had had neck cancer and he's dreamed he's being stabbed at the side of his neck by people who he had physically harmed. And so he, he wakes up and he um, asks to see his daughter. And for the first time, um, he asks for her forgiveness and expresses his love. So we saw a lot of us where the distressing dream became transforming and then it led to something, whether it was an insight or an actionable step. And he was kind of a case in point.
0: And the detective, is that who Eddie is? Eddie the detective. The detective.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he yeah was, and he was like a crooked detective, right? He was horrible. Yeah. yeah. And he ended up in the, the, it, what happened was, um, he wasn't actually my patient at the time. The New York Times was here to do a story on this work. And um, uh, one of the patients who she was supposed to see wasn't able to be seen. So she asked for somebody else. We he sent her to Eddie, and Eddie, felt this cathartic need to tell everybody everything he had done wrong, um, and it was a lot <laughs> so, so it was
0: like his real life confessional was he Catholic
2: yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he yeah. had been raised Catholic and right. he had cheated, abused drugs, brutalized criminals, the whole thing and, and so he felt a need he had to tell everybody. Mm-hmm and um so she came back and said you know your whole theory has gone to hell because this guy you know is just having dreams of all the stuff he's done but at the end of his life and he was he was so he was so fearful that actually he had a psych admission because he was threatening to he couldn't sleep because of distress and he was going to kill himself guns were taken out of the home and then towards the end of the life yeah he, he makes complete peace and um and says he's sorry, and acknowledges truthfully what he had done, and just felt better.
0: <laughs> so almost like he was in a in a, going through a, his own purgatory while he was still
2: alive. Oh, absolutely. Well, he had enough of a religious base, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. But it was funny that he 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 he. The best part of the story was that he had this. Everybody you went into, people actually had a verb for it. you were being eddied because you would have to sit you down and tell you all the stuff you did. And of course, he got like one of the world's largest platforms because he ends up in the New York Times.
0: Oh, so. my gosh. Yeah. Wild. Well, it, that story and the other stories about people solving emotional issues that they had gone through. What I find in the work that I do is that there's always an emotional component before illness. Takes place in the body. And as I perceive it, Chris, the body and the spirit are made of energy, and there's a, a membrane that is the container for that. I call it the energy field membrane. And when I'm working with somebody that has a medical condition, there's always a tear or a hole in that energy field membrane. So I envision myself going into that tear or hole, and I'm shown a scene and I'm given a year and I'm given a little bit about what happened, I'll tell them where it is. If it's a past life, we'll get what the date was, where it was, what they were doing, and then correlate it with what they've experienced in this life. But once we illuminate what that is, and it could be something simple, like somebody called you a bad name when you were little and it hurt your feelings. Or my favorite dramatic story was, I was working with a client in the UK and I saw her as a kind of a preteen. And I said, I see this explosion happen behind you. And I said, Does that make any sense to you? And she said, Yeah, I was a victim of an IRA bombing when I was 11. I'm like, OK, well, good. Yeah, yeah. So as soon as we illuminate it, it eradicates that energy block a la Eastern medicine, acupressure, acupuncture, clear the block to get the chi to move, that mm-hmm. whole concept. And it allows that membrane to heal. And then the body can work on full power, which helps the body heal and helps it maintain health. And so it's fascinating to me what comes up, because it's not always necessarily the most dramatic thing. But it reminds me of a little kernel of popcorn that gets Mm -hmm. stuck in the energy field. And then other life events, energy piles on top of it. And Mm -hmm. then eventually it causes enough pressure that it causes a blowout. Yeah. So in my energy healing work, I believe that's the most important part of a healing because we can fix body parts all day long, but if we got an energy leak, what's the point? The body's right. not working on full power. So right. I find it so fascinating, all these correlations with the research yeah, that you've done. That.
2: Right. And then,
0: you know, what I'm the seeing.
2: Lines. Yeah, yeah
0: it, absolutely. So is there a difference between what kids dream and what adults dream? And do they provide the same amount of comfort? Is it back to that frame of reference thing? What have you have you had many kids
2: in your Yeah, practice? we've actually published we've we so we, we've we published a case series on this, and there's a chapter in the book. Um, I, I I think children do this almost more imaginatively and creatively and unvarnished. Um, they, they're obviously um, they don't have reference points for death or language for mortality, um, and they also don't have regrets, and that's the biggest difference, I think. Um, but they, there are several children who, um, who self-inform through these kind of experiences to, to understand what's actually happening, um, and then the, the, the interesting thing was in, in two of the kids in the in the book. They hadn't known people who had died, but they'd known pets who had died. And the return, and this was their words, and they're on film. Um, uh, How old were they? uh, One was 13, one was 16. And um, there's more children than that, but the ones that were filmed. And um, (coughs) um, Jessica and Jenny. And um, they said basically was that the the return of the pet meant that they were not alone and they were loved. And that they were going to be okay. And they basically told us the same virtual thing. Um, in terms of having other things addressed, um, there was one young lady, Ginny, who um, was raised by a single mom, and her concern was, you know, who was she and how was she going to be without her mom? And what ended up happening was her mom's closest friend had died years earlier. She really didn't know her very well, the daughter, but but she certainly knew of her. And and what she ended up scene was her mom's room, and in the room was her mother's friend um, playing with the curtains. Um, so the, the idea is that her, her fear was addressed. And again, this idea that she wasn't alone. Um, so yeah, that came through uh, again and again.
0: Well, and it's been, again, my experience that we all come in with this software And we all come in with the ability to see spirits and see energy and communicate telepathically. And I have had so many moms over the years say to me, can you please come up with a way that I can explain to my child what happens when somebody dies. Cause we're at the funeral home and we're telling little Johnny that grandma's in heaven and he's going, no, she's not. She's in that box over there asleep.
1: Yeah. And,
0: to, you know, and to understand that. And I've had so many moms say to me, can you somehow come up with a way that I can help explain to my child how he knows about my grandfather who's been dead for 20 years. And he can describe him and he describes conversations he has with him when grandpa comes to visit him in his bedroom, right, right. you know, at night.
2: Yeah. And
0: she said, this kid knows, he's telling me stuff about my granddad that I didn't even know. And yeah. it ends up being right. And then little children who know about past lives and they know details that can be corroborated with, online historical data mm-hmm. and this kid can't read yet so yeah. that's what my children's books angel messages for kids and my new one angel messages for dogs comes out next week oh, and um, it'll be out by the time and uh, and I talk about that you know how how we can see that in a in a way that a child with illustrations of course they think the books have maybe 15 sentences in the whole book you know it's about the pictures but yeah but it's about how what happens is we're told usually about the age of six or seven. Oh, honey, that's just your imagination. That's not real. Mm -hmm. When Mm -hmm. it is real, it's just that the grownups have forgotten how to do it and they can't see it anymore or they they're not getting that information or when they get information, they discount it.
2: Right. Right. And
0: they think, Oh, you know, I'm losing my mind. That's just (laughs) crazy. So I, I think it's fascinating that you're saying that that the children, especially, I would think even the younger that they are, that imagination is such a huge part of the equation and yeah. how they're seeing. Well, they
2: things give and... you an unedited version. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Again, it goes back to that frame of reference kind of thing as well. So talk to us about how when you can tell when somebody's approaching death from a timeline.
2: But yeah, it's, it's, it's really not hard. Um, you know, it, we, we think of um, dying as this episode, but it's really a process. And and um, death is a moment, but dying is this process. And, and most people die the same way. Um, you know, 10% of deaths are acute or sudden. The rest are not. Most die with chronic progressive illness. And um, the common denominators are you eat less, um, and you sleep more. And, uh, you know, if you, if you, when you, when you trace people back at the end of life, if you talk to their family, you go, you know, yeah, I mean, three months ago, they're reading all their meals and they were able to get their mail. And, you know, last month, they're just sitting in their chair and they're only eating, you know, 20%. That's the trajectory. And you just kind of connect those dots. And that slope is usually the slope towards the end. Um, so it's this gradual lessening Um, where you're having sleep that tends to be more comfortable. Um, It's easier not to do than to do. Um, You know, that's the common denominator of all illness. Even if you have the flu, you know to go to bed. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's just easier to close your eyes. That's what dying is for most people, unless there's something interfering like a disruptive physical symptom or some sort of psychogenic distress. Most people do it comfortably.
0: And then how do the dreams correlate with that? Do you find that... You had mentioned that, that you find that the dreams of their deceased loved ones seems to increase from a frequency standpoint.
2: Yeah. So we've gone back as far back as six months, even a year before death um, with our home care patients. And, and at some point they switch from life concerns um, to, to these, these more existential or spiritual Uh, um, focuses. Um, And yeah, you know, at least two plus weeks before death, they start to dramatically increase in frequency and the thematics seem to change.
0: Yeah. Well, Well, again, my 12 phases of transition, which is a configuration of how angels and deceased loved ones are positioned around the patient. And again, with time not existing in the spirit world, I watched It happens to everybody that dies, whether they die instantly in the case of a homicide or a suicide, or whether it's out over a prolonged period of time. There's a gal that called into my show for two years whose father was dying, had Alzheimer's and it took him two years. He was in phase 11 of 12. And I scan people and the the faster they're progressing through the phases, Mm. I can tell the closer to death they are. And it's so convenient to know this information for the families because so many families want to be there at the end and they're taking time off work. And some instances traveling vast distances, you know, getting on a plane or, or whatever that happens. And so I find it interesting with that correlation between that. The other thing that's interesting is about phase nine or so, I see this phenomenon where there's a vortex that forms above their head, and that helps the spirit separate from the body. The spirit, as I perceive it, is the power source for the body. So when somebody dies and their spirit and their body separate, the body doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And, And this phenomenon is caused by these angels' wings. Now, I'm a Catholic girl, so... Angels look like big entities to me, like a Catholic girl would, you know, with 12 years of Catholic school is what they look like. Somebody that lives in the Amazon may think it looks like a ball of purple energy or something, but their wings move and it creates this drag. And the first time I saw this was with my own mom. And I thought, God, am I losing my mind? You know, what is this? And so I've seen it thousands of times since. And when I was writing the book, I I just researched for kicks. It reminds me of a giant owl. You know, when a giant owl's wings move, it creates this drag and it's silent. And it reminded me of that, so I, I googled um, giant owl wings vortex. Come to find out, there's this thing called the wingtip vortex. That hmm. there are thousands of aeronautical engineering drawings and you know, and articles about it. Every, everything that flies, every bug, every sure. bird, every plane, every kite, every whatever. Yeah, same principles. Tip, the wingtip vortex causes the lift
1: yeah. and
0: that's what separates it out. So I think for those that have the ability to understand, grandma really isn't hallucinating. Grandma is dreaming of her mother and her deceased loved ones. They know that the end is getting near. My God, that is such invaluable information
2: yeah. well you know regardless staff. of what your belief system is in terms of the source of all of this uh, the ideologies it, it, it no matter what it's their experience and it's valid and should be honored and respected for that alone um, well, how do
0: you how do you tell the difference between somebody hallucinating and somebody that it
2: oh day, day, and, day and night so medically you know hallucin States of confusion we call delirium, and they're extraordinarily common at the end of life. Um, the vast majority um, cause agitation and distress. Um, the thoughts are fragmented; they're they're tangential. Their theme, thematics are generally horrific. Someone's stabbing me. They're chasing me. There's fires. Um, they're, they're high. The, the hallmark of confusional states is they're disorganized. So they're all over the place end-of-life experiences um, are actually highly organized they're acutely aware of them so delirious patients generally don't call, call it are called delirium oh you know i remember the fire i had last night <laughs> doesn't happen that way um and the biggest so the biggest difference really is the effect upon the person so most people who are having end-of-life experiences are comforted they're soothed, they're acutely aware of them, they have insight, they have recall, whereas delirious patients don't. They're, they're frantic, they're agitated, they can't sleep, those sort of things. So they're, they're day and night difference.
0: And from a vibrational standpoint, here's, here's an interesting correlation with that. Things that are based in spirit, I teach mm-hmm. people they feel at least neutral or good. Mm-hmm. Things that are based in fear, which is our brain, feel Mm -hmm. bad. And that's how you can tell the difference. People say, well, I had this evil spirit telling me something and I'll say, well, you know, did it feel bad? Yeah. Well, that wasn't coming from spirit because Mm -hmm. spirit is, is pure love. And that's what I got out of all of the stories, even in the book that it's all based in love. And at the end of the day, people feel loved before they go. And these dreams are what, is helping them feel.
2: Yeah, that's a, a really good des- description. That's the end point. I agree with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, so, it's, how does somebody, real quickly, in the few minutes we have left, how does how does a family member decide, and help their loved one decide when it's time for hospice?
2: Um, you know, I, I, it's a great question, and unfortunately, the majority of people are in for weeks and it's a six month benefit. Um, I mean, unfortunately, it has to be predicated on an honest conversation um, with a clinician. So if somebody is being told, you know, we're still hopeful and really they're dying, then it's hard to make the referral into hospice. Um, A lot of people come in, honestly, when the needs are overwhelming, that they're at home and they're alone trying to care for their loved one, that there is help. people have to suffer way more than necessary so I think those are the keys is knowing when that time is there is coming and and really the need to be supported
0: Um, yeah and and I heard from a hospice director in Ocala Florida several years ago that she combats the physicians because they don't want to let the patient go and her comment was it had to do with economics as well as other things that they wanted yeah, to. Yeah,
2: I, I, I don't. I uh, believe me, I'm very critical of physicians. I don't. There's not. There, there's a few things where there's an incentive not to. I, that's less the case today. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it's difficult to do, and they're not necessarily good at it. Um,
0: right. That's yeah. what I tell people when I, I talk to so many people that have been to many physicians to try and get a diagnosis that yeah. works and get their symptoms handled. And, and I'll say, there's no malicious intent there for mm-hmm. the most part, they're doing what they know to do. They're doing the yeah. best they can based on their frame of reference and their training. Yeah, so sure. in the few minutes we have left, bottom line, what are you hoping to accomplish with publicizing you know, this work, you know, what's the big picture here for you?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm less optimistic that we're gonna change the um, clinical world. Um, I just don't think uh, we are. I think there's generally this movement culturally where people want to uh, cl- at least have better control and understanding of end of life. So we're seeing it in death cafes, et cetera. The baby boomer pocket- popul- a
0: death cafe?
2: Oh, they're, they're groups that actually get together. And, and it's a big thing where they talk about dying, their fears or whatever, or their wishes. Um, there's death doulas, like there's birth. Yeah, not that. So there's a whole, there's this whole, the point is our, our generation ahead of us was perfectly comfortable with the doctor in control of being rather paternalistic. And that is fading. And now the baby boomers want control of their life and they're they're consumers of health. They're not just the recipients of health. So they're having more of a say. And if you look, you know, you couldn't sell a book on dying 15 years ago if you tried. Now all sorts of things are being written about because people are asking these questions. So I do think that this has the op. I hope this has the potential to. Um, reach the recipient of care, not necessarily the providers of care. So people, it will be more normalized. It will be more accepted um, that when somebody sits with their loved one and they start to refer to their dog from childhood, they, they will value it um, as what it is. So I, I think that's really it. it, is essentially giving this permission and space um, to occur, validating it explain it in a framework of caregiving that this is okay that there's a spiritual dimensionality to dying. Um, but again I, my, my hope is to influence on that level. You know, there's a Netflix series coming out in, in on this and then there's um, a public television uh, documentary that's coming out as well starting in February. So I think that's it's really- your
0: documentary.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So how are we gonna be able to find that? It's gonna be on um, it'll Netflix. Be
2: on, it'll be, yeah, it'll be on Netflix and, um, and uh, that the other one will be on public television. It'll be in the majority of households in the United States. And it's called, it's the same name as the book actually. Okay. And I think that's really important because I think seeing and hearing from the patients and families is profound. Um, you know, you can argue the realism all you want to, to a messenger like me, but you actually hear from the people, it really matters.
0: Well, and it seems to me that, that your wishes are being granted because it looks like you're on a trajectory to inform the masses. Three million downloads on your TED Talk is a pretty good start, for heaven's no, sake. N-
2: none of it I asked for.
0: Well, I, you know, you're being led. You're, well, being,
2: you're being led. I tried to get out of the TED Talk, actually, so know. it's kind of funny how it all happened.
0: I know, but you're, but you're being led to do this. And I give you a lot of credit for having the courage to put yourself out there. I always say, for me, it took golden ovary courage. You know, guys have brass balls and girls have golden ovaries. I'm like, took yeah. golden, golden ovary courage for me to release this book. Because I thought, God, people are going to think I'm just nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I've had so much feedback of how much it's helped people. Sure. And helped them. It's like a gift. to families who the book my book is a gift that they give to families who either have one who somebody who's dying or they've just lost someone and so uh, when I get an email I always say okay now now go get this death is but a dream book and give them that book too (laughs) And and then it'll validate you know everything that's there so you know so we can do that so if you let me know when the I documentary will. and the yeah. PBS special are out, we'll, we'll spread that on the okay, you know, social you. media channels and get everybody to share it as well it. with you. all of that. So thank you so much for no, thank
2: you. taking thank the time. So I'm really glad you reached out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I was led, you know, for mm-hmm. me to to have you pop up on my YouTube video and you didn't even teach looking, me how to change my battery. And my car key. Key. <laughs> I know, I mean, you know, thanks. You didn't help me with that, but, <laughs> but opened up this whole new world. And like I said, I love it when science catches up.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that's the interesting thing in our story, right, is there is a yin and a yang to it. So yeah, that's perfect. absolutely.
0: Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I I knew it was gonna happen eventually. And I kept thinking, okay, somebody's going to show up and here you are, you That's know, and, it's, and, and you're better and your research is better than I could have ever envisioned.
2: Oh, thank how you. Much,
0: you know, how much it correlates. What's the next project? Are you going to continue the research?
2: Yeah, when I mean, we were doing that, we're also looking at um, caregiving. Um, so this idea that people say it's the best, hardest thing they've ever done yeah. and trying to capture that, the positive yeah. aspects, the life affirming living aspects.
0: Terrific. Well, everybody, I hope... This, is, this information is gonna help you have a new beginning and live a better life, live an improved life. And for you and your family members as we go into 2021, obviously 2020 has been interesting to say the yeah. least. And as we go into 2021, hopefully this will arm you with some things to ponder that can help enhance your life. And so I wish you all a wonderful, happy new year and Lots of love from Sweet Home, Alabama, and Buffalo as well. And uh, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks,
1: everybody. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan and like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com.